Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Joyce Arter to the show. Joyce is a dynamic woman with a rich background, both literally and figuratively. She has been on an incredible journey with money, but not just with money. She's also trained as a therapist. She's run a national level intensive outpatient mental health facility. She's an author. She's a corporate speaker. So Joyce has got it going on and she brings the compassion and the excitement for money and all things related. Joyce, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. I'm excited to talk with you. Absolutely. I was doing my research and I always kind of just have my antenna up for like cool people that are doing great money things. And and your name came across and I wish I could remember exactly what how I found you, but I found you and I was like, she just seems like a cool, cool person. Let me reach out to her. And you so graciously agreed to be on the podcast. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I was happy you reached out. So we were talking just before I hit record and you said, it sounded like you haven't always been a master of money. It sounds like maybe money was not such a great thing for you in the past. So can you tell listeners a little bit about your journey with money? Absolutely. So I always joke that we therapists specialize in our own issues. And I definitely have dealt with tremendous financial anxiety in my lifetime. And as an entrepreneur, I sort of recreated some challenges that I had in my childhood. So my father was born during the Great Depression, and he had a real scarcity mindset around money, understandably. So fear that there's not enough resources to go around. There's a focus on lack and competition. And when I was an adolescent, he was an executive in the automotive industry, and he lost his job. He got laid off. And he was unemployed throughout most of my adolescence and young adulthood and dealt with clinical depression. And so I developed a money mindset that was confusing because we sort of lived in a nice house, yet there was a lot of financial anxiety, a lot of money worry, a lot of sort of miserly behaviors. And so I became money avoidant and very anxious around money. And going into a profession where we're told that we're not going to make a lot of money, that was a challenging belief system that I needed to work through. And when I started my business, I started it with $500 and 50,000 of student loans. And I hired one therapist at a time and made a thousand mistakes and ended up in cash flow hell. So even though the business was big, and it looked great on the outside, I was having difficulty paying my rent and paying my staff because the larger we became, the more money was outstanding in insurance. So I sort of recreated the same kind of scenario that my father had. And of course, being a therapist, I did practice what I preached and 
I went and saw my own therapist and she said, well, Joyce, what does money mean to you? What do you think of when I say the word money? And I said, oh, I think of stress. And she said, well, no wonder you make it go away. And so we had to do some deeper work on my self-esteem, on my financial boundaries. My own CPA did an intervention with me and he said, Joyce, you're not running a charity to employ therapists and you deserve to make a profit. And so I had to really work on embracing my worth and setting different boundaries personally and professionally and changing my psychology of money, the way that I think and believe and the way I manage my emotions around money and my financial boundaries and relationships. And by doing that, my business transformed. I sought a lot of help from others, which was another big part of my transformation. I reached out for support from anyone who would help me and help came out of the woodwork. And I had a neighbor who said, Joyce, you need a business valuation. I didn't even know what that was. And when I got the business valuation, this I remember being tearful, handing the CPA my QuickBooks file. I thought he would tell me that I had to file for bankruptcy. And he said, no, your business really, truly your business model works. You just have a cash flow problem and I can help you. And so within seven years, with the help of a lot of others, I was able to turn my business around and sell it for a seven-figure multiple and more than I would have ever imagined making in my lifetime. So big transformation. And I love helping others make that same shift. Oh my gosh. So many beautiful threads to pick up on, Joyce. I just love it. And I, I hope the listeners, I don't know what the listeners are going to pick up on. I mean, one of the things that I picked up on is bringing in outside help, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, beliefs, seven years. Like from that kind of intervention point, I'm taking it to like selling the business at a very, very nice profit. And here's the other thing that you didn't say, but I'm curious about is what was it like for you to sit with that money at payout after the business was sold? That's a great question. I had met with my financial advisors, which I always recommend to everyone to have a great advisor like yourself. And my financial advisors warned me of, I think they commonly use the football player analogy or somebody who wins the lottery that the research shows that the NFL players who make millions of dollars often have to file bankruptcy. The, the statistics are very high. And same with lottery winners, because if you haven't done the deeper work, both psychologically and spiritually around your money mindset, you're going to make it go away, as well as if you aren't doing the financial planning. And so I work with my advisors on getting support for my money management and developing a long-term plan for my financial health and wellness. And so for me, I think one of the things that I talk about in my book is that I think about my relationship with money as if money were a person. And when I was in my 30s, my financial self would have been named Penny. I was neglectful of her. I was embarrassed of her. I didn't talk about her with anyone. I avoided seeking business and financial consultation because I was ashamed. 
I was afraid that somebody was going to tell me that my business model didn't work. I was embarrassed of the debt that I had. And so I stuck my head in the sand. That was my biggest mistake. And so reaching out and asking for help and having humility really opened the doors to prosperity. Instead of, it shed light on that shame and made it go away. (laughs) And I realized that most people have issues with finances and money. And just like we all have mental health issues, it's part of the human condition. And help is available and effective. And all of us is smarter than any one of us. And so when you have the input of other people, including my staff, my leadership style really changed. Instead of thinking that I need to have all the answers to take care of my staff, I realized, of course, I don't have all the answers. And I have all these beautiful, intelligent people working with me who I can tap into and ask for help and ask for support and ideas. And like I said before, help help came out of the woodwork. I just needed to ask. What do you think were some of your blocks to asking for help? That's something I, I feel like it shows up for both men and women, but it has like a different kind of tone to it. Does that make sense? But like, there's a lot of people that struggle to ask for help. So what was that about for you? And why do people struggle to ask for help? Yes, I think sometimes we receive early childhood messages that seeking support is a sign of weakness or that we need to be self-sufficient and not sort of be a burden on people. And that can have some gender implications for guys that might be to man up. And for me, it was kind of like, be a good girl. Don't be a problem to others. Be responsible and that type of thing. And so I think that those messages did me some disservice. I think also as a helping professional, I'm a caretaker and I'm a mother. And so I tend to put the needs of others before myself, including financially. So I was taking care of my family, my kids, my employees, and charging business expenses on my personal credit cards. So I was not taking care of my own financial health and wellness. So today, my financial life, I would refer to her as prosperity. And I think of her as a reflection of my own self-worth. And so because I value myself and my health and wellness, I take care of my financial health. And I have become much more financially literate and informed and empowered and, you know, take that very seriously. That's as I have more and more conversations with women and money around that topic, the financial literacy piece comes up, the self-worth piece comes up. So can you speak to more about that? And what's that journey like? What are some of those resources that you've found to be so helpful for you? Yeah. So I noticed that as well in my practice. I noticed that as my clients made progress in therapy, they started to earn more money and have greater financial health and success. So there's this connection between self-worth and net worth, which author Susie Orman said she saw the same thing in her financial practice, but she said that net worth does not lead to self-worth. So it doesn't work the other way around. Self-worth leads to net worth. And then for women in couples therapy, I've noticed 
in male-female relationships, even with highly educated women, oftentimes there's an imbalance in financial literacy. I think we're told that we're not good at math since we start in school and we're not encouraged to learn about it and learn about finances. And so in traditional relationships, it's very common for women to sort of acquiesce and for the financial reins to be in their male partner's hands. And so I saw that over and over again, and it can really lead to an imbalance of power and control in the relationship. And for me, I I didn't so much have that experience, but I had, in terms of my self-worth, I think obviously I had the self-esteem to start a business and the confidence to put myself out in the world, but I had to then really increase that as my business expanded, you know, as I was in larger circles and sort of playing with the big dogs, I had to learn how to negotiate. And for example, when I went to sell my business, that was something that I took very seriously. I did a lot of research. I hired a great broker. We had 50 prospective buyers and eight offers. And I really negotiated hard. And one of the things that I really wanted was equity in the parent company. So because I was selling it in my 40s, not in my 60s, I didn't want to be out of the game. I just didn't want the responsibility anymore. So I was able to get equity in the parent company, which actually netted more than twice the amount that I sold my company for. As listeners, you listeners, stop and take a moment. Take an inventory. How are you feeling as you listen to this? Notice all the words that Joyce is using and how she's using them in an integrated way. And I'm thinking about Joyce, the penny money and the prosperity money. And I'm thinking if penny money showed up at the table, what you're talking about, there's no way any of this would have happened. Right? This is not, you didn't come out of the womb with all this knowledge. You didn't even enter adulthood with, like this has been an intentional journey of growth. And that, that self-esteem, self-worth piece, that part of what I was thinking to myself is, I think I know I frame it kind of in my head, black and white, is you either have self-esteem or you don't. But in listening to you share your stories, what I heard is your self-esteem grew over time. And you, you knew that as your business grew, your self-esteem needed to grow and your self-esteem needed to grow to grow your business. Like there's this kind of reciprocal relationship. Is that, am I picking up on kind of what you're putting down? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. It's important to note that I believe that self-worth is sort of on a soul level, on a spiritual level, and that we are all worthy and deserving of all that is good. And then we all have egos also as part of the human condition. 
And healthy self-esteem is healthy ego in terms of knowing that we all have strengths and we all have areas of deficit or needed improvement. And none of us is perfect. So it's having some emotional intelligence and self-awareness as you approach business and finance. So it's not that you're overvaluing yourself, but you're you're valuing yourself in a way that is real. So for me, yes, I could have sold my business. I remember I had somebody offer me $250,000 and I could have said yes to that. And I had people who wanted me to continue running it, which I really didn't want to do. And so I really stuck to, I really held the line and stuck to my conviction about what I wanted in that transaction and felt so good about it on the other side. I haven't regretted that for a second. It definitely was something that I thought about really strategically. Wow. When I, I hear personal integrity and in what you're describing is you had a clear sense for what you wanted and it maybe didn't start fully clear, but you worked to get it clear for yourself. So that you would... That's so interesting that you said that about personal integrity, because I think that's true. And integrity also relates to finance and business, like thinking about going through due diligence when selling my business. You know, they had to make sure that everything was the way I said it was. And it was. <laughs> so, so the price didn't come down and, and the sale went through successfully. And so... I think that is it. We can all work on our emotional intelligence, our self awareness, our self esteem. And in terms of financial empowerment, I mean, I think at beginning levels, places like Consumer Credit Counseling Service or Susie Orman's online course or Dave Ramsey's, those are good personal finance courses. Or I've worked with my advisors, my CPA who does my taxes, my financial advisor. And I interviewed others to make sure that I'm informed about different investment opportunities. I'm always learning. Recently, I've gotten into some venture capital investing, which is something I I didn't know about before. And so as we grow, we can expand our financial health and wellness as well. It is such a developmental journey, right? I think about that. You're talking about the consumer credit counseling service, right? Like that's a place to start. I started with a guy doing 403B accounts and he was teaching me some things. Would I do what he was telling me now? No, because I know more. But there was there was a good base. And so, you know, I've been through the Dave Ramsey stuff, read the Susie Orman stuff. All of that stuff is good starting place, but it's not an ending place. There's always more to learn and refining and getting more nuanced. And I think when we're early in the journey, we can kind of almost become disciples of a particular financial air quote, gurus. But like in time, you need to grow into developing your own style and way of doing money. What do you think about that? I completely agree. We all have different risk tolerance and we have different money styles. I have a financial advisor who's extremely conservative and I am a person who's willing to take more risks. So he balances me out a bit. I also know that I tend to overspend if I don't have accountability. So he's my accountability partner with my finances. And because I care about my financial health and I don't want to go through what I went through before, 
I take his advice, but yeah, I think it's always good to keep learning and keep talking to other people and make sure that you have the right relationships and the right people supporting you. So we haven't talked a lot yet, but can you talk about financial trauma? What is that? What does that mean? What are examples? Yes. So as therapists, we know that traumas are life experiences that we are not able to process like usual life experiences. So they're they're very upsetting, very distressing and have a huge impact on our psyches and our bodies. And we can have symptoms like nightmares or flashbacks or depression or anxiety or muscle tension. And financial traumas include things like the Great Depression or the pandemic or an economic crisis, like we've been living through a time of great uncertainty economically. It can also include financial loss from a divorce or a breakup or from unemployment or a job loss or a business failing or having to short sale your house or going through a foreclosure or a bankruptcy. Those are all financial traumas. Theft, if you were the victim of a scam. And so financially triggered PTSD is when you have an event like that that triggers trauma in your body and in your mental health. And so treatment is available and effective. So seeking counseling and working through those traumatic issues and the belief systems around them. For example, I'm trained in EMDR, which is a trauma protocol that is very popular and empirically supported. So using EMDR and maybe cognitive behavioral therapy and tools for mindfulness can help us reprocess those traumas and then reprogram some of the belief systems that maybe came out of those traumas. So for example, in EMDR, when a therapist is working with a client, they'll ask the client, what was the negative belief you had about yourself related to that trauma? And that's the root belief system that needs to be reprogrammed. And it might be something like, I am not enough. And if you believe that you're not enough, that's going to manifest financially. It's going to manifest in a lot of different ways in your life. So doing that work is really important. Yeah, those core beliefs, I'm not enough. I feel like that's one that I come up against quite often. And I know I'm in my own ongoing journey of working through that and and getting more and more on the other side of I am enough. And I'm curious, you may not have heard of this new EMDR book. It's called Every Memory Deserves Respect. Have you heard about this new? Oh, that's cool. No, I love the title. The author's name is Michael Baldwin. He was a past guest on the podcast and I heard his interview about his book. So he was a successful ad executive and, but life was in shambles and a mess. So externally, very successful net worth, but self-worth was in shambles. And so much of it was predicated on his childhood trauma. And it wasn't until he got into EMDR therapy that he started to connect all those pieces. And so talking with therapists who really understand that money, self-worth connection and what's going on and we got to get to the root of the issue, which is often resolving childhood trauma. And from my perspective, I'm, I'm curious, do you see that too in your work? Money work is like, it's childhood trauma. We're going straight into that. Or at least I, this is me coming out. I don't know how you skin the cat, but. Yes, absolutely. I work as a coach helping 
mostly entrepreneurs with their money mindset. And one of my clients had childhood trauma and had basically emancipated herself from her parents at a young age and was financially responsible for herself from 18 on. And so she was a workaholic as a result of her childhood trauma. And she also had trust issues. So she didn't ask for support. She didn't delegate. And so she was exhausted and depleted. And her business could only grow so much because she only had so many hours in the week. And so we worked on that root trauma and to help her shift to accessing support and being able to cultivate a leadership team and to delegate and to practice better self-care. And her business transformed. And she told me last week that in 2022, she grossed 1.1 million. And in 2023, she's anticipating 2.4. So huge growth by working on her her self-worth and and resolving some of that trauma so that she could not work so much and rely on the support of others. There is a a very close linking there between self-worth and net worth, right? And and she was on her way. She had a structure that couldn't build from. But this this could be true for someone that maybe is even starting out with a small business doing $50,000, $100,000 a year, and they're just trying to get things put together. They also need to work through their stuff. This isn't so you're not saying like you gotta wait until you get to this larger size. No, no, maybe if you start before you get that big, it might even be a better thing. Absolutely. I remember when I first hung my shingle as a therapist in private practice, I set my rate so low because I was so sort of desperate to get new clients. And I remember, I remember this is so embarrassing. I told a client that I would see her for $25 a week. And she was like, that's awesome. I'm going to come twice a week. And then she was coming with her nails done and telling me about her vacations. And I realized that I had definitely undersold myself. So working on fee integrity was something that I had to really pay attention to. So let's talk about that for a moment. I've not heard that word combination. The concept, yes, but fee integrity. Can you talk about that a little bit more? So my, my understanding of that is, for example, I'm a public speaker. And I fee integrity is when you have rates that are your usual rates and you hold to that. You don't suddenly slide down and say, oh, sure, I can do a webinar for... if my usual rate is 5,000. So it's about, because then how do you trust that that's what you're worth if you're switching around like that? And of course, as therapists, we do sliding fee and there are rubrics to kind of structure that so that you're being mindful and it's appropriate for each person and fair. But yeah, so it's really about recognizing our worth and holding on to that. And being consistent with our rates. So that's something that I still work on in my speaking business. I There are times that I consciously choose to do a pro bono talk or a talk for a nonprofit group and I give a sliding fee, but I have to be really mindful about that so that I don't slip into those kind of codependent behaviors where then I'm not making any profit at all. And I'm spending a lot of time supporting others, but not taking care of myself as well. 
So if someone's partnered with someone that's struggling with fee integrity, what do they do? If somebody is partnered with them? Yeah. Like in- so like if your spouse is looking at you and you're the entrepreneur that's struggling to put your stuff together and you're the spouse that's listening to this and you're like, well, yeah, I got a partner with fee integrity issues. Like, what do I do about that? Yes. I mean, I think talking about finance with a couples therapist or with a financial planner is always helpful because then you have a mediator to kind of help you have these conversations. And our partners can see our blind spots and they love us and usually want the best for us. And so they can tell when our money mindset is causing some self-sabotage. So I think working on some of those things together, I've had couples tell me that they've worked the program in my book together and that that's been really helpful in them recognizing their different money styles and developing ways to communicate around money and resolve some of those types of challenges. Do you have a favorite exercise that you like to do with couples around money? Oh my gosh. I have a financial health wheel, which is one of the exercises in my book. And it's a self-assessment tool to measure how well you're taking care of yourself financially in a variety of different ways, starting from budgeting to seeking financial planning to are you giving to charities? Are you paying your bills on time? Are you saving and investing? And so having couples measure how well they're doing in certain areas can help them identify their areas of strength and deficit. And then identifying each of us has different financial skills than each other. So identifying in your partnership, who is maybe going to be the best person to review financial reports or to manage your QuickBooks or prepare your tax statements or that type of thing. But I think you should both be involved because again, I think having that partnership and making sure that there's equity and, and mutuality and collaboration, I think is really healthy for the relationship. I'm in hundred percent agreement with you on that. And I love to use the words financial intimacy. Do you use that language with couples? I have not heard that before, but I think that's super cool. So as I put that out there, how would you define financial intimacy? Off the cuff. No, I mean, I would say it's, it involves trust and closeness and deep sharing and deep trust and deep partnership and collaboration. And so it really involves sharing and communicating and working together. And I think so many people are financially avoidant. And usually in a partnership, there's at least one of us who's a financially avoidant. And so I don't think couples talk about money as much as maybe we need to. One of the ways I formulated in my head is like, it's the, your partners and your own financial traumas that end up colliding together that create the money taboo like, or the inability to talk about it. I find that there's one partner that's like obsessed with money and making it, holding it, storing it, investing it, some combination of all that. And there's another one that's like, just let me go do my own damn thing. I'm going to spend the money the way I want. Like, I don't want to think about it or worry about it. And it's, and they make each other crazy. And it's like, and I think in terms of like polarities, they're just so, they polarize and trauma tends to send us to the extremes, right? So yeah, trying to come back to 
middle is kind of the goal. Yes, absolutely. And and some of us are savers, some of us are spenders, and we each have our own financial styles and that can be challenging in a partnership. So there needs to be communication about how you're going to structure your money, what's going to be shared, what's going to be separate, if anything is going to be separate, and what are some of the financial boundaries, and then how do you make financial decisions together? And so making sure that you have those conversations so that you're on the same page and there's transparency and trust. because. Financial infidelity is definitely something I've seen in my practice. Oh, you hit the big word, financial infidelity. Let's go there. How do you define financial infidelity, Joyce? It's when you or your partner betrays the other financially. So it can be secrecy. For example, it could be secret debt or secret assets. So I've seen very small examples of this. One of my best friends actually is married to my financial planner. And when she goes to the grocery store, she buys Visa cards to then get herself manicures and pedicures and buy shoes because it shows up as groceries. And her very financially controlling husband then won't question her about it. So that's a silly example of financial infidelity. But I've seen very extreme examples where people have had another family, for example, and that they're supporting, another spouse and children that the partner doesn't know that they even have. Or, of course, when people go through divorce, sometimes there, there are forensic accountants that need to come in because there, there's some dishonesty about assets and what's available. Mm. Yeah, that takes me back to like my days of being a professional firefighter. And I can remember the guys talking about hiding their second job money from their wives sometimes. And, you know, that there's, yes. And there's, you know, it's this, in my mind, financial infidelity is symptomatic. It's the problem, but it's not really the real problem. And I don't want to hang everything on financial trauma, but there's a lot that financial trauma can explain for why you're doing this kind of behavior. There's somewhere in your past where you've learned it's not safe to trust other people with money. And you reminded me of another client that I had that she was becoming an empty nester and she had accrued $25,000 in credit card debt. She got a credit card without telling her husband and was using that credit card for self-care. And in therapy, she realized that she was pretty angry at her husband, that they'd grown very disconnected, that she was not happy about the kids growing up and moving out and the idea of just being alone with him. And so a way of her expressing her resentment was to spend money that he didn't know she was spending. But then she had this debt that she wasn't able to pay off and this big secret. And so really that was a symptom of her marital issues. And so when she was able to talk with her husband about her unhappiness in the marriage, they were able to work on things. She was able to share with him that she had this debt and they were able to work on their marriage and also pay off that debt and plan the next chapter of their life, you know, collaboratively. Uh, What a beautiful example. I I know there's pain on the front side of that, but it so clearly illustrates that when emotional connection is, is, stress, strained, or cut off in an intimate relationship, hit them in the pocketbook. It's a phrase that comes to my mind. 
right? Hit them where it counts. And whether that's conscious or unconscious, whether that phrase connects or doesn't, the, the principle is there. And, you know, this is a call to all partners to really check how is our emotional connection? How are we doing there? And if we don't have a healthy sense of emotional connection, everything else is going to be rattling and shaking and problematic, including the finances. Well said. Great insights, Ed. Absolutely. Oh. So Joyce, you know, we've got a couple more minutes to finish up this podcast interview. What's something we haven't yet talked about that we need to talk about when it comes to, to people and money, couples and money? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think just really encouraging people to do this inner work on exploring your your family beliefs about money, your cultural beliefs, looking at your parents and your grandparents and what was their money story and how have you recreated that in your own life and then empowering yourself to create change, whether it's through therapy or financial advising or a combination and of course, reading your book and my book and, and working the program in my book to really improve your money mindset and welcome an abundant life, which is to me having mental health, financial health, work-life balance and connected relationships. Oh, what a gift. So if people want to connect with you, Joyce, and the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to find you? I'm on all social media and my website is joycemarter.com, J-O-Y-C-E-M-A-R-T-E-R.com. Oh, Joyce, I am so thrilled that we crossed paths, have had this incredible conversation. I can only imagine the conversations to come in the years ahead of us that know our paths will continue to cross. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. And really, I would want to just say, the compassion and the energy that I hear in your voice around this work that there's, I felt no, no twinges of shame. And this is such a loaded, right. And there's, when we talk about this, shame can just show up in this, these conversations so easily. And, And yet I hear from you, there's no shame for people around this from your perspective. They may feel shame about it, but that they don't need to hold on to that. Yes. And thank you. I'm so glad that you hear that from me because I think, It is a process of cultivating self-compassion and compassion for others and asking for support and help is available and effective. I think there's no better way to end on that note. Thank you so much, Joyce. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Ed. I had a wonderful time talking with you. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed. Ed.